You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This is Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. I have with me in studio today David Donaldson and Michael Daly from the Atlanta Healing Center. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi, Dr. Blank. How are you? I am very well, thank you. I'm glad that I'm so glad that you're here. And this has been a really interesting topic because David, you sort of threw this out last night as let's let's just do addiction in the news. We haven't talked about that for a while. And because of the holidays and uh, some shows that um, we didn't get to do live, the interesting thing is, is there's a lot of addiction in the news. And the more we began to look at this, the more we found. Each one of us um, has picked a couple of stories that we were particularly interested in. So our format's going to be a little different today than we normally do. But we are going to look at different stories, addiction in the news. Some of them may be related in some ways. Others are completely independent, but all of them are very interesting and something that I hope you listeners find as fascinating as we did. So the story that I wanted to lead off with um, comes from um, some observations made about the opioid use disorders and current public policies. So one of the the things that I'm sure that there isn't a listener within the sound of my voice that hasn't heard about the opioid epidemic and hasn't heard of all the ways in which we are combating this by developing all of these policies. We're finding ways to bring lawsuits against the manufacturers. We're educating and training doctors to prescribe appropriately and carefully. In fact, last week I gave a a talk to a dental association here in Georgia because they're now required every two years to have at least an hour of education on opiate prescribing and the opioid epidemic. So we're clearly going after the, as usual, the supply side of the problem. So we're, we're, we've got lots of money being poured into our borders, into law enforcement, into our DEA agents and uh, GBI agents here in Georgia. We're, we're doing all that we can to look at the supply side. That's had some interesting ways in which we're missing the point as usual and we've had some unintended consequences as usual when decisions are made and policies are introduced and not all of the constituency and the interested parties when they don't all have a say or are able to influence or at least be part of the discussion. So this was an article that I found really interesting in the um, psychiatric advisor from August of 2019. Well, I'm really just intrigued with where you're going because I actually didn't get a chance to see this particular article. Um, I, I certainly have... have um, we've talked many times about the different ways that, that 
as a society, we're beginning to finally look more at the prescribers um, here in Georgia and in many states. Prescribers that mm-hmm. that prescribe controlled substances have to register um, with the DEA, and they have to be checking what's known as the physician's monitoring. Uh, prescription um, prescription drug. monitoring. So they're checking to make sure that if they're writing a prescription, that the person's not already on that prescription. Um, um, so definitely on the on the supply side of the economics here. But I'm assuming your article is going to tackle the the demand side. Well, I think that's part of it. And one of the the reasons I like this particular um, writer and I like this uh, contributor is that they go back and look at history. And you know the old adage, those who don't study history are bound to repeat it. And I think that one of the things that many of our listeners may not be aware of is this isn't our first rodeo here in the United States with opioid crisis and epidemics. This is actually our third one. And the first one happened uh, in the Civil War, started with the Civil War, and it began when morphine was um, able to be identified from the opium poppy. And so Bayer Aspirin Company over in Germany was able to find the opiates, find morphine, find heroin, and be able to now perform provide these medications for pain relief for the soldiers. Also about that same time, the hypodermic needle was developed, and that allowed a new delivery system for pain relief. We could now inject the medication for a much more rapid uptake and higher doses than are possible or easily accessible by mouth. So that started the first one. And when that happened, one of the things that um, we did from a policy standpoint was we developed the uh, Harrison Narcotics Act of 1914, which um, was really saying, okay, we're going to make the use of opioids, opioids now illegal. And we're going to make treating someone who has the op- the addiction to opioids illegal. So you doctors, if you write medications to try and help these people that are on these opioids, you're going to be in trouble. You can be prosecuted. So they made it illegal. You couldn't buy um, the opioids over the counter. So this was 1914? Uh, 1914 was when the Harrison Act. And so at that point, doctors were not able to use opiates to treat pain. They were able to use it to treat pain, but it made uh, heroin a scheduled medication. It made the, the patent medication or the medication that your pharmacist might mix up for you. Uh, that you had to have a doctor's prescription for that. So people couldn't buy it over the counter, and patent medicine, you know, uh, companies weren't allowed to sell it in the back of the Sears catalog. So it ratcheted down um, and made doctors now responsible for determining whether someone should take an opiate, not just, oh, I have a toothache, let me rub a little heroin on my tooth and make it all better. So 
they they greatly changed uh, the access point that was no longer over the counter. They made some of the medications like heroin actually illegal, and they put doctors now in charge of prescribing for pain, but they also criminalized prescribing or trying to help someone who was addicted to the medicine. So that was a great big um, club. But uh, we certainly got rid of a lot of the access to. So at that point, it was looking at the person who has become an addict has a moral deficiency and has criminal tendencies. And if you're treating that person, then you're fostering the... the that side of the equation. Right, the illegal activity, and so we're just going to shut that down. And that pretty much, well, not pretty much, it very much changed the face of uh, American medicine. It certainly brought a lot more regulation into it, not always a bad thing. Mm -hmm. There were um, certainly new laws looking at let's make the production of it standardized let's make sure that this pill that says 10 milligrams is equal to this pill that says 10 milligrams made by another company let's look at how we're producing and distributing and dispensing medications so there were some positive things don't get me wrong there are positive things that came out of it but the backlash against recognizing why people might be taking these opioids besides acute pain or some chronic pain conditions, that was just not really entered into the equation. Then we had our second opioid epidemic, which started in the 70s, and this was really, well, actually 60s, um, related to people coming back from Vietnam. So as you know, the Golden Triangle there, um, that provides a lot of drugs um, in Vietnam, Cambodia, Afghanistan, uh, lots of drugs were available. Lots of our soldiers were daily users of heroin. And they had it cheap, available, and it was becoming a big problem. Some of the legislation during this period of time actually created the methadone treatment program that many people were aware of because they did need to do something now. There were many of our soldiers coming back from Vietnam addicted to this medication. Many were able to be detoxed, never had a problem with it, but there were still a significant number that did have uh, the disease of addiction and were finding it very difficult to just be detoxed and go home and take up their normal life. So the government tightly regulated opioid addiction treatment programs, and this is where we started to see the methadone clinics that were federally run, federally regulated, and the doctors and the staff that worked in those clinics um, did not, you couldn't just walk in off the street during this period of time. I would not be allowed to write methadone. That was not something that um, was commonly available. And still, if you weren't in an opioid a treatment program, then um, that was illegal. And our our good friend um, David Smith, Haight-Ashbury David Smith, uh, and his group, were um, very brave doctors that began to say we need to change this. And so we began to see 
increasing opportunities for the treatment of um, addiction. Then in the late 90s, when Purdue Pharma um, had, was running out of their patent on oxy oxycodone, they decided that they were going to develop a new delivery system. And at this time, they developed the um, sustained release form of oxycodone, and they named it OxyContin. They changed their marketing plan, and this was dramatic. And when this happened, the um, the marketing was not to cancer doctors or anesthesiologists who usually manage pain in hospitals. This wasn't to pain doctors. This was to primary care doctors with the message, if you have real pain, you can't get addicted. Uh, with the message that if you um, uh, give this to someone who has addiction, they won't like it because it's sustained release and they don't want to wait around for the effect. So it's very safe to use. And they marketed it saying, we need to treat pain. And I've gone way over time with this story, but uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I'll finish my story and turn the mic over to my colleagues. Thanks for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hi, this is Ron Camacho, host of the Business Hour on America's Web Radio. If you'd like to hear an eclectic mix of great programs from relationships with Dr. Ann Schiebert to homegrown veggies and from classic cars to the Constitution, we've got programs for discerning listeners at www.americaswebradio.com. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. This is America's Web Radio. And today in studio, I have Michael Daly and David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center, and we're looking at addiction in the news. I got real carried away about my article about our failed drug policies regarding the opioid um, uh, crises that we've had. I mean, I was ready for you to just keep on going with that story. It was it was <laughs> fascinating, and and you're actually only in the third wave yes, just of this starting. opioid crisis. So so I think you have to continue. I've got to finish. I got to finish it up. So um, so then we move forward 25 years, and we began to see um, the false claims by the pharmaceutical companies, uh, doctors being enticed not just because of the false claims, but because there was a growing lobby among uh, families of pain patients, pain patients themselves, as we saw our length our lifespan lengthen as we have many of our boomers that aren't interested in sitting in the rocking chair or being in the corner drooling. They want to be up and active. Managing pain became a big deal, and managing pain moved to primary care offices instead of being focused in the cancer end-of-life stage or in the um, you know acute pain management. So we began to see this... Um, uh, this kind of problem, we began to see the Joint Commission wanting to make pain the fifth vital sign. So everybody who came into a hospital was asked about pain, whether they were there because they had a runny nose or a cough or whether they were there because they had just had their leg torn off in a car accident, everybody was asked about pain. And the recommendations, according to the Joint Commission, was if your pain scale on a 0 to 10 was 4 or more, opioids should be considered by the doctor. And um, so we began to see this perfect storm of people expecting, not just considering, but... Well, and they would they would gauge their pain level around <laughs> the four or more and you get good drugs. Right. You know, I mean, that was well known mm-hmm. to every person probably in in a certain age category right. that if you went to the ER or you went to the doctor or you went to anywhere, um, it's pa- worse than a four. Right. Pain better be more than a four or you're going home with a bottle of aspirin. So um, so we had that particular thing. Um, we have um, the uh, change in policies by the insurance companies not being willing to pay for very good pain relief related to physical therapy or other types and forms of medication that are not opioid. The opioids, for the most part, except those to treat addiction, are very relatively inexpensive. And so um, there was a great push from the insurance companies, well, we're not going to cover physical therapy and we're not going to cover these other adjunctive medications, but we will cover your hydrocodone. So 
That's cheap, yes. so we'll we'll do that. We also saw that um, patient satisfaction forms became a big part of how hospitals got recognition, how they won their awards for standards of excellence, how doctors and hospitals got reimbursement from insurance companies, how employees of these hospital systems got their bonuses or their pay raises or their promotions related to patient satisfaction. And if you said, no, I don't think you need an opiate, and the patient wrote up a bad recommendation, that could have an impact on your career, your pay, the success of your hospital or clinic. And so there began to be this other additional pressure on prescribers to pony up and folks what they give an opioid um we also saw that the increased stigma um around addiction uh began to make it more and more difficult for people to be willing to seek treatment for depression or anxiety or insomnia or other things because pain relievers treat a lot of emotional pain as well so we began to see a lot of people seeking from their primary care doctor pain so anyway what we've now um, realized that in many opiate treatment centers abstinence is the model it continues to be in spite of evidence that Uh, If you have the disease of addiction and your dopamine releaser of choice is an opioid, that medications, there are FDA-approved medications that are very helpful and life-saving. Still, most patients who have that diagnosis and are seeking treatment are not offered medications, or if they are, it's for a brief period of time, only during a detox. So we've seen this rise in pressure to provide pain medication. Then we've seen this backlash as the pendulum pendulum swings, and we're going to cut off all these sources, our unintended consequences that we're seeing people addicted to heroin and fentanyl. Drug dealers and drug cartels have increased, and we are now seeing uh, people who are addicted and who do want treatment not able to find the treatment that they want or need or that is successful and we still have way too many people dying so i found this a very interesting article looking at all the ways in spite of our good intentions we sometimes make decisions that are not necessarily in the best interest of the patient well and and the thing is that i still feel calls from folks that are dealing with opioid addiction that because of having had stints of, of recovery in 12-step methods or, or that type of thing, they're very, very, um, they don't think that if they use medicated-assisted recovery that they're actually in recovery. Right. And, it, it, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's kind of fighting against itself when, when you're trying to help somebody understand that, no, this is... Um, you know, this is different than you using opiates. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are barriers within the recovery community for somebody with opiate addiction to get recovery that's not able to do abstinence. And what we know is that that 40% of people op- addicted to opiates are not going to be able to be successful at, at an abstinence-based 
model. Right. Um, I know at NA meetings, there actually had a group conscience where they made a decision, if you are taking buprenorphine, um, you're welcome to attend the meetings uh, and listen, but please hold your your sharing um, to a minimum. Wow. I mean, it was an amazingly strong statement for uh, a 12-step program when I, when I heard that. Um, and this, I'm not sure if this is NA as a whole or this is a particular NA group. There has been a growth of, of heroin anonymous meetings where they have made a decision that medications are between you and your doctor. And as long as you're following your doctor's mm-hmm. directions, right. it's an outside issue, um, which is, I think, a much better statement. The, the, in, the, in the second wave, when the methadone clinics really were on the rise, mm-hmm. um, people were pretty much, I mean, you just didn't really meet opiate addicts at 12-step meetings right. because they were all at the methadone clinics, and there was a real wall between the two. Right. Mm-hmm. And they were separate from traditional health care. They were also separate from traditional recovery programs, and they were very separate from traditional co-occurring disorder programs. Well, so, and many of them were, were financed by the patient themselves. Correct. Completely so financed. It was, it was completely um, under, you know, under the radar, basically, And And very restrictive in terms of... Often the patient had to go in every single day and get their dose of medication. Uh, as they proved themselves more compliant, um, they were sometimes given more than one dose to take home, but it was very restrictive. People often had trouble regulating their their work and their regular life and taking care of a sick child or going to school or trying to have a to travel, have a vacation. It was very, very difficult for them if they were taking methadone. It saved their life, mm-hmm. and it helped them to get back into the workforce and into their family and into their community, but they were very isolated from recovery, and they were very trapped in that system because mm-hmm. methadone is extremely hard to come off of. Mm-hmm. So it was just interesting looking at um, the, the, the failed good intention but failed policies that when we try and have this knee-jerk response to, well, obviously we got to stop the supply, um, and that that continues to be our focus of our attention, our research, our funding, and not really look at most people can take opiates without a problem. Most people are perfectly compliant with their doctors and their appointments and taking their medications. So we're talking about a smaller percentage of the population that needs treatment for addiction. Yeah. And the right kind of treatment. So So it'll be interesting to see if those numbers change. I I, I think part of you know, you started out with if we don't remember the past we're destined to repeat it. And and I think that our our awareness of history is getting less and less as we're becoming much more totally focused on getting our news and information from the internet and from Facebook and other social media um, um, sources Mm -hmm. as opposed to actually going to classes and reading history books. The number of students I work with who never ever set foot in a class and get all of their information from Google is amazing. Um, 
<laughs> universities are going to have to deal with that at some point. But part for for me, part of what it was highlighting was in the addiction field, the the idea that negative emotions have often been a driving factor of addiction. That um, mm-hmm. when people are having a lot of anger, they're apt to go use. When they're having a lot of frustrations, they're apt to go use. Well, research is showing there's another element to it that we'll have to come back to after we take this next break. And when we come back, David, you'll lead us off. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better Hello, and Dr. healthier life. Have More you information is also available on the themselves? website at themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is 
Connection. This is America's Web Radio, and I'm Dr. Susan Blank. With me today are David Donaldson and Michael Daly from the Atlanta Healing Center, and we're talking about addiction in the news. Right before the break, David, you started talking about one of the myths that I think most people believe, which is... Folks who have the disease of addiction and are about to relapse are relapsing because they're depressed or they're sad or they're lonely, that there's a negative emotion in their life. And your article did not necessarily support that. Well, it supported part of what you said. Okay. It was it was highlighting that there's one particular negative emotion that people with addiction have a really difficult time managing and dealing with, as opposed to any negative emotions, as opposed to anger or stress or the others. The one it really focused on was sadness. That ah. people who have um, that people um, dealing with depression, people dealing with sadness, dealing with the the emotions associated with with that are much more apt to either relapse or to binge more or to drink more frequently, um, turning to alcohol and other substances to medicate the feeling of sadness more so than any of the other feelings in this in this recent study that came from Harvard. And so thinking about this the story that you just talked about with, with people becoming so much more isolated and people becoming less connected, that sadness is becoming a, a bigger feeling for a lot of people that and and really not having very many outlets to be able to manage it. Certainly, the the addiction is is right there waiting. Well, also, I mean, I think that our society has gotten so so that you can isolate yourself, but still Easily. be mm-hmm. you can you can be physically isolated, but you still have computer friends, or you know, I'm using air quotes. And, and there's sort of a semi-connection, but it doesn't it doesn't um, quelch that that need to be around another person, you know, because there's no there's no interaction face to face. There's no touching. There's no that type of thing. So even kids that are signing up for college, mm-hmm. you know, many who who go to Georgia State University. Are are doing it online. They've never been to the actual, actual class. class, campus, or campus. Yeah, They're, everything is online, and um, it, it just it it just blows me away a little bit to think that a person will be able to go through a college, you know, a, a degree, mm-hmm. and and to get a degree in a in a. Human services right. relationship oriented field of study without having any, any actual interaction human contact. Yeah, um, and it's it's a little bit scary because that you know that that college experience that you have that's what builds I think and and helps people think better and and look at different and manage conflict and mm-hmm. deal with things. So the thing that really grabbed me about this Harvard study, uh-huh. Susan, you'll like this because this is a subject that that you've often focused on is in particular smokers. So Harvard the Harvard study was looking at four different studies on smokers, looking at um <clears throat> Um, smokers dealing with cravings, dealing with frequency of smoking, dealing with frequency of puffing when they are smoking, and dealing with predicting relapse 
and so it was rec- it was it was showing that the feeling of sadness was being medicated by nicotine and by smoking much more so than any other feeling and extrapolated to other addictions but that was that grabbed my attention because we've had a number of patients that have just really struggled putting down cigarettes when there's so much um, motivation for them to do it in their in their careers and in their lives, and that's the one thing that they keep hanging on to, and I'm thinking that we need to start addressing sadness. That's a that's not one that you usually think about, but yes, that's really powerful. Um, the other side of that myth that. Um, uh, I think is interesting, and it certainly wasn't in the study that you cited, but was the idea that many of our patients are actually more at risk for relapse when things are going very well. That's what I was going to say. I thought that's where you were going with it. Yeah, yeah. That I think a lot of people are assuming that it's... um, it's bad stuff happening. I just got fired. I just, something awful just happened to me, and so I'm going to go use, which does happen. Right. But the idea um, also, uh, many of our patients have said, wow. When things get too good. When things, when something happens that's that's really, really positive, they don't know how to deal with that either. Well, and it could be a, a addiction of choice. You know, it might be we celebrate with alcohol and mm-hmm. we medicate with nicotine. Right. Exactly. So it might be that both of them are a big trigger, but this one is looking more at, at the nicotine reaction and people feel bad smoke more is kind of what they're talking mm-hmm. about. And they smoke in a different way. Yeah. More puffing, more... <laughs> right. Deeper pulling it in. <laughs> and And more rapid. They're not just casually taking a sip of their coffee or a sip of their drink and their cigarettes burning half the way down. No, it's burning half the way down because they just inhaled it like a Hoover uh, vacuum cleaner, just taking it in because the nicotine does medicate that. Which is an amazing thing to watch, to watch somebody who's dealing with a mental stress or anxiety finish a cigarette in two drags or three drags is uh, amazing. Pretty impressive. Um, so my my article that I liked is the uh, one that talks about the highly potent form of marijuana. Uh-huh. Uh, there was just a study in Arizona where it looked at teens, and, and they, they said that the teens included 8th, 10th, and 12th graders. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is in 2018. And of the 50,000 that they surveyed, about 33% had tried some form of marijuana. Any form. Any form. Okay. But of those 50,000, 24, nearly 24% had tried marijuana concentrate. And marijuana concentrate is considered um, a high-potency Form mm-hmm. of, of marijuana. It's not. It's not the flower uh, or the bud form. It's. It's been um, concentrated down to either a wax-like substance, uh, oil, or a brittle-like uh, break. Break a piece off type of thing. And um, the 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 study was showing that many of the users used E 
electronic means mm. of um, delivery. So for somebody that's using a concentrated form of marijuana, oftentimes it's associated with E-type cigarettes or E-type devices. So vaporizers. So vaporizers. Which delivers it even more it quickly. It concentrates it even wow. more quickly. So not only not only is this like kind of a, a two <laughs> a two hitting one or two birds with one stone kind of thing, but it's it's pretty amazing. It was pretty amazing to me that out of fifty thousand students, almost twenty four percent had used uh, high uh. potency marijuana. Um, it also talked about the the teens that used this concentrated form of marijuana were much higher they had a much higher likelihood of becoming addicted to it so the 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 number of students that then became addicted to marijuana was much higher than the ones that just used any form of, of marijuana. Um, so it's 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 very interesting that that we have. That's the one aspect that that is so classic with addiction. What what we have always recognized is the faster something hits the brain, mm-hmm. the higher the addictive potential. So on the scales of rating the addictive potential. Um, the, um, taking it by mouth versus taking it intravenously has always had an, a diff, different connection and and it's just so like our society to look for what's going to be the quickest <laughs> end and the most addictive we can possibly make it well and and you know just just kind of looking at this wholly um, when you think about e-cigarettes or e- the use of e-devices um, you know in the news right now, of course, we're we're hearing of that they're trying to um, make it Ill- illegal to sell flavored um, nicotine, you know, packets and that because they're targeted mostly towards children. Children. Mm-hmm. Um, so and their favorites are, by the way, gum. mango and mint. <laughs> Just as and, an aside. <laughs> and 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 the thing is that now almost you know. All these these kids have these devices. You can't tell if they're smoking nicotine, and you can't tell if they're smoking marijuana. Right. And of the marijuana, you, you don't know, but you're pretty assured that it's been made into an oil foam form, which means mm-hmm. that it's going to be higher concentrate. Right. And then the delivery and potentially system. much much more damaging on the lungs. That's right. Um, so this this whole thing was just was. Talking about the um, the use of marijuana, the use of, of highly concentrated, and then the addition of the um, electronic devices—it's kind of like a perfect storm. And and Dr. Blank, you were talking about how we're trying to come up with ways to um, lower the opiate right use, and and looking at that, and looking at this huge. Um, epidemic that we have going and then while everyone is looking at that up comes these e-cigarettes up comes the marijuana and you know oils and everything is on the rise and oh 
by the way, we're we're looking at I, I don't know, I think it's like thirty some states that have legalized some form of marijuana. Right. So while <laughs> while we're over here looking at puppies and shiny things, um, we're seeing that uh, other addictive substances are on the rise, and I, I just uh, we can't keep the <laughs> we have to keep our eye on the idea that it's not the substance; it is the brain. The brain. But we continue to find new and different not only substances, but delivery systems and methods of um, production of them. So speaking of puppies and shiny things, apparently elephants really love mangoes, too. There's a story on Facebook of an (laughs) elephant climbing over a wall to get to mangoes. Ah, So it's a highly potentially addictive um, Flavoring. flavoring that people love. We Are we ready for a break? We are ready for a break. So we're going to take that right now. When we come back, we're going to talk about more addiction in the news. So thanks for listening. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. America. 
America's Web Radio, and I'm Dr. Susan Blank. Today, Michael Daly and David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center are with me, and we're talking about addiction in the news. And there were just so many very interesting stories, some related, some not. But um, I think, David, you had one, or Michael had one, on on uh, social media. Well, we had that, but we were also talking about finishing up on all this marijuana thing. Good Since choice. Michael had started us off on all these these marijuana studies. Um, for these states that are, are getting uh, on board with the medical marijuana card, there mm-hmm. was a study done first looking at... Um, at 17-year-olds with their frequency of using. So it was looking at at adolescents who were acknowledging smoking marijuana and their frequency of marijuana use. Mm -hmm. Um, In California, prior to being able to get the medical marijuana cards, and then looking at these same people once the cards came out, and what they found was that the cards were getting much more often, um, being acquired much more often by the people who were heavy marijuana users much more so than the ones that had the diagnosable psychiatric stress issues or the physical disorders um, that that the ease of access was was much more desirable <laughs> to the to the regular marijuana smokers and I guess the ones with the high potency marijuana smokers are probably right at the very front of the line much more so than the ones who had an actual diagnosable reason for it. Which um, flies in the face of the idea that if we legalize it, it's going to help all of these people. There was the studies coming out showing that, um, you know, when we were talking about pain management and everybody was saying, oh, you know, the states that uh, have legalized it have fewer opioid-related deaths. Um and that was since debunked and restudied, and that is not the case at all. And so it really is not an alternative. It's usually an add-on mm-hmm. to people who are using pain medications. They're not using the opiates, or excuse me, the marijuana instead of. They're using it in, in addition, addition to. to. Oh, it was interesting. Um, I just want to throw this out there really quick. We, David and I just took a kind of little cross-country trip, and we drove. And it was amazing how many billboards along the way had something to do with CBD oils throughout, throughout the Midwestern states. I, I was just flabbergasted. It, it's like that was by far the most popular billboard that you saw was... CBD sold here. CBD sold here. CBD products here. CBD. Fireworks sold here. CBD oil sold here. Amazing. And amazing how many people think that they're getting only CBD oil. Right. Um, Not, I think many of them are wise and do know that they're getting marijuana but it's a nice story to tell your mama um or your physician but um i do think there are some people who are innocently starting it and that feels amazing (laughs) 
not recognizing well, and that they it's are, pot that feels amazing. They're getting told that it is the miracle substance for treating all of these Almost, different things, yeah. aches and pains and, and anything you can Depression imagine. Depression and anxiety and insomnia. and Just like the little bottle of snake oil, it treats everything. Mm-hmm. And that just makes them feel happy. They just feel so happy until they get paranoid or anxious or begin vomiting uncontrollably. <laughs> So then the last study that really grabbed my attention, our attention, actually was um, looking at social media and stress um, and and how that can foster stress addiction. We're going to have a guest in a couple weeks who's going to be talking specifically about screen addiction, so I'm sure we'll hear more about it. But this study was talking about how people who are getting stressed out on Facebook or on Instagram or whichever media site they're on Rather than turning off their their screen and going and doing something um, like exercise or or something soothing, when they're getting stressed out, they will just switch to another feature of the same platform. So if they're in Facebook, rather than closing Facebook and doing something else, even going to another platform, they'll stay within that platform and switch to another so they're managing their stress within their the, within the social media platform, and so what the study was showing, talking about, was the people who are getting more and more adept at that platform are becoming more and more addicted to that platform um, and using it to manage their stress. But it's becoming this vicious cycle that the more they use it, the more they want to use it, the more anxious they get. And the more they're seeking relief of the anxiety, so therefore they're using more and more, more and more of the social media. And it is um, when you when you understand that the social media platforms, Facebook in particular, that the algorithms are to continue to feed you the things that you're interested in. So if you spend time on a particular topic, or if you click on a link, then that gets fed back to the algorithm and you're going to see more and more of similar kinds of articles or crazy cat videos or whatever it is that you do more and more of those things are going to show up and for many people it may be the crazy cat videos that make us smile, but for a lot of you folks, should have seen that elephant climbing over the wall. Uh, that would, uh, you're, I'm sure you're, I'm, I'll probably see it before the end of the <laughs> evening. Um, but the idea that um, for for many folks, they're already quite anxious. They're already feeling insecure. They're already having comparison anxiety, and the more and more they get fed that, or the more they get fed negative and sometimes even false um, stories, it, it really becomes very difficult. I, one of the one of the observations that um, our neurofeedback specialist has is that there are people that cannot stop looking at their phones. Now, when you come in to do neurofeedback, you're sitting in a chair in a dark room and you're watching a video or something from Netflix or a comedy um, series that you like. You're watching something and your brain's getting rewarded um, with improvement in how the picture... So so it's not as though you're sitting there and we're asking you to be still and meditate. No, no we're asking no, no, no. you to sit there and watch a video of your choosing and that they can't put their phones down. 
Right. That even though they're watching a video and they know they're having a medical treatment, they still will disrupt their training. Which they're paying for. Which they're paying for, good money, um, and they're disrupting it because the movements of swiping left or right or clicking on something um, is disrupting what we're trying to reinforce with the neurofeedback training. They can't put them down, even when asked. And they'll, she'll ask them and they'll put it down in their lap. And the next thing you know, she starts to see all this artifact on the screen because they're in there just flipping and and um, and checking things out. They can't stand it. Nope. It's really impressive how compelling social media is for some of our patients and how much more anxiety they have when you ask them not to do it. <laughs> they really have a hard time putting their screen down and engaging in treatment for addiction addiction <laughs> they're they're exempt at an addiction center at an addiction treatment center um the compulsion that they have and the anxiety around you trying to interrupt that is really impressive it's amazing and and so much of of treatment apart from just learning about basic addiction is also learning about and beginning to implement ways to self-soothe right and self-care and they're getting trapped in this new anxiety producer and they can't learn what they need to learn well thank you all for listening and we look forward to seeing you all next week on detailing addiction you're listening to america's web radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com thank you for listening